On this week's Devils in the Details, United lost to Spurs over the weekend, compounding a difficult away record in the league during Ten Hag's tenure and raising questions about the state of the side in the new campaign. We took an extra day to re-watch this match and really try to figure out if and where things are going wrong and whether you should be worried. Alright Case, we've just rewatched the entire Spurs match, and now we are rolling. Before we get into it, how are you? I'm doing alright Aaron, how are you? Not great after seeing the loss and the reaction to this match on social media, but I really think we have the potential to, to cut through the noise here and come back with what we've found in this, in this rewatch. I think there's a lot of things United can do better, but I also think there's a lot of things that uh, people have wrongly concluded um, have gone wrong in this match. And so I'm really excited to get into it now. Yeah, me too. I, I think it was a, a really good rewatch we just had. And yeah, I'm, I'm, let's dig into it because I think we got a lot to get into. And yeah, let's do it. All right, let's start with our favorite topic or our favorite starting topic, at least, which is pressing. Pressing is one of our favorite topics because we think it's so important to the modern game and often under-discussed. Um, and, and often I think it's true that big matches are won and lost with pressing, but I think this time that wouldn't really tell the full story because honestly, I personally highly reject the notion based on what we just watched that United lost this match due to their out of possession performance. Um, we've prepared a rant on this with a bunch of statistics, but before I fire through it, do you have any introductory thoughts to add about this? Yeah. I mean, I I would get a little more specific just to and I know we're going to, but I would say not only did, from a tactical standpoint, pressing not decide this match, I would say not even pressing execution decided this match. Yeah, I, w- I would say this match had a lot more to do with what happened with the ball than it did uh, with, what it ha- with what happened against the ball. Yeah, I pretty much agree, and I think we can talk about where some of the pressing was breaking down when it was, um, but... I think the stats that we've pre-prepared for you guys here are going to make it pretty clear that I don't think pressing was a big issue in this match. Um, and so let's get straight into that, right? We What we did here was we've seen a lot of threads about pressing. We've seen a lot of content about it in this match. So we went through and marked every single pressing attempt we could find and filed them under one of three categories. Either United won the ball back, uh, particularly in the opposition half, The second category was United didn't win the ball back, but they prevented the opposition from being able to build out. So either the ball went out for an opposition throw in or the opposition recycled the ball around the back, but didn't get out. Um, And the third one was the opposition broke United's press. And in this match, we found 18 times where United won the ball back from the press, nine times when they were able to contain the opposition press and 11 times where United were broken in the press. So that means that 27 out of 38 times United attempted presses that we could find in this match, they did not allow Spurs to break through their press. In particular, from the 11 press breaks, we counted two that were actually pure luck from Spurs, where they kind of just cleared the ball under pressure, and it landed at Richarlison holding up the ball, or United had a mishap where they won the ball back, but they slipped and then Spurs got through. 
Um, there were four breaks due to the fullbacks not jumping. So that's a tactical decision that we've talked about a lot on this podcast. Um, to give a quick overview, essentially, United don't tend to involve their fullbacks in the press. And I mean, there are many episodes we can refer to here where you could where you can go back and listen to where we've talked about literally this. So any episode. We'll spare it this time. Yeah, we, we talk about this often. This is something we keep track of. Um, and then there were five from individual errors. I think there were two from Bruno. There was at least one from Rashford, who definitely wasn't at his best out of possession in this match. On top of that, I'd say I don't think any of these 11 press breaks were what led to Spurs' big chances in this match. What led to Spurs' big chances were either uh, bad luck, uh, defensive mistakes from individual players, or um, United losing the ball high up the pitch in with, with bad giveaways that put Spurs in a position where they didn't have to break United's press to create chances in transition. Now I'm going to allow Case to add anything he might have here about this topic. And we'll go from there. Yeah, so a few things. There were a bunch of really good threads on Twitter after this match about the pressing that happened in this match. I saw a particularly good thread from uh, Rodrigo Cumbraus uh, on Twitter. That is also his at, R-O-D-R-I-G-O-C-U-M-B-R-A-O-S. On the tactical adjustment that Ange Postacoglu made in... Uh, really, I think he says that it happens in the second half, but really he makes the adjustment in around the 40th minute. Tottenham's fullbacks start widening out more often. In the context of United's press, this is a wise choice because, as we know, uh, United's press is predicated on leaving a fullback free on the far side. So if you bring your fullbacks out wide, you create the situation where there's more space, theoretically. Like you said, it really didn't lead to Spurs' major chances. And so I think that's really the caveat I would put here. Uh, Spurs' second goal did come from breaking the press this way. However, it didn't lead to a quick transition. Uh, They just happened to go really down the wings, um, sort of around United's block. And then United's block was able to settle. And then it was a mistake while in their block that led to the goal. So while the press was broken that way for the second goal, I think it's, it's questionable to claim that it, it is what compromised their defensive structure, which I think is the key thing here. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add one thing in there, actually. Um, in particular, I think this is something that in the first two games has come up a fair bit with the wide fullbacks, where um, it comes up where oppositions that have a goalkeeper who can hit fullbacks with chips uh, on the ball can execute this play more often than sides that do not have goalkeepers that can do that. Because what you had was Vicario, or in the first match, um, Jose Saw, who are able to uh, have their goalkeeper join the back three and then force United's attack to... I mean, United actually pressed in a in a 4-2-2-2 in this match, but for the most part, the weaknesses are still in wide areas. So when, you're, when you have your goalkeeper join, um, you can force United's press to be fixated on your center backs. And then if your goalkeeper can hit the fullbacks with their first time pass, then you can get out of the press. Um, and I think that's important because going wide is a workaround to play this United side for sure. I think that is the weak point of this United team in the press, but it is also reliant on a personnel specific that I don't think every team in the Premier League has. Um, I think it's probably something like half the teams in the Premier League who have a goalkeeper who could consistently hit balls like that. Yeah, and, and, and I, w- I would go a step further. 
you don't for, in order to exploit this mechanism United's press, you don't necessarily need to break the press via the fullback. What it can do is you can spread United horizontally and then there's lots of space in midfield and you can use that space in midfield, drag defenders around. Uh, Wolves did that a lot. Wolves yes, um to a certain extent. Um Spurs do that a couple of times in this match. However, again, it's not what leads to chances. And beyond that, this is this is true to varying degrees, but often it's preventable mistakes from United's midfielders. And I, midfielders is too vague. It's specifically Casemiro earlier in the match and Eriksen later in the match. Um, but again... These aren't the things that lead to the chances. United almost invariably settle back into their block when this is the thing that leads to United's press being broken. So it's not the thing that really uh, decided this match. Yeah, I don't want to spend too much more time on pressing because I think our point here is that it's not worth spending that much time on from this match. Um, but one more thing I will say is I do think in the instances where Spurs broke United's press, one common theme was that Madison was able to find space off Casemiro, uh, Casemiro being the primary player who was responsible for marking him in this match. And because he was able to find space off Casemiro, that was usually the thing that led to him being able to turn. And then we know Madison's passing range once he can get facing forward. Um, and I do think that was a relatively big factor in what I would say was a not very good Casemiro performance once again. Um, there were a number of other defensive issues that Casemiro had. I actually don't think that this was a problematic match for him in possession of the ball. But I think out of possession, this is just about as bad as we've seen from Casemiro, I think, in his entire top five league career, really. Yep, agreed. Um, and I would I would take it a step further. And I get, I want, I just want to stress this point. Casemiro's errors overwhelmingly came when United were in settled defensive shape in their own half. So this, again, is not a pressing thing in most instances. It's actually United uh, Tottenham settled on the ball in United's half and then Casemiro losing Madison. Yeah, that that is what it is. Let's talk about how the chances actually got created. Or I'll say, let's talk about how the goals were created. Because overwhelmingly, the goals were Tottenham's two biggest chances. And they had one other very big chance uh, where Sun gets into between the width of the boxes and the shot gets blocked. The three major chances, United are have invariably have lots of numbers in the box. For the first goal, United actually have seven defenders in the box, six of whom are between Kulisevsky who delivers the original cross, and... Sar. Sar, who ultimately ultimately puts the ball in, in the net. Kulisevsky, obviously you don't want to allow these crosses into the box uh, from the byline. You don't want Kulisevsky to be able to get that deep into your box uncontested. However, in the scheme of defensive breakdowns, a ball into the box from the byline on the weak foot of a winger... When there's really not much box threat, there are you have seven defenders in the box. I think you have two or th- I think you have two attackers in the box when the ball is delivered, and the ball gets blocked. It's just a it's a really unfortunate bounce, and I don't like for our analysis to be 
oh, we, it was unlucky, but I really think the ball rolls very unkindly here. And it is Spurs' biggest chance up to this point in the match. And I would say United had overwhelmingly been the better side up until that point in the match. Did you agree with that, Aaron? Yeah, I mean, I'd say three things, right? I'd say the small, small factor in this was Saar reacts to the deflection faster than Mason Mount. Um, the reason why that's really small is that stuff like that happens, right? Once the deflection happens, you have no idea where it's going to go. Sar is at a head start. These are just things that happen once the cross comes in, like Kay says. The second thing, which is slightly bigger, is that the reason why the cross comes in in the first place is that Kuluzewski is allowed to get into a lot of space wide um, and then drive at the box. And I think this is down to Garnacho. What happens here is Shaw is stuck in a position where he has to hold the distance between himself and Lissandro um, as United maintain a narrow back four. And that allows Kuluzewski to pull really wide. And I think what Garnacho has to do there is follow Kuluzewski out wide and track him tighter to make sure the cross doesn't come in. But the primary error, or, or not even error, but the primary cause of this goal, like Case is, I think, sort of alluding to is, I honestly think it's just quite unlucky. Um, even if Garnacho makes that mistake, and even if Mount makes that mistake, the odds of that ball deflecting the way it does, and Saar being able to pounce on it and get that goal are very low. When you play good teams, which Spurs this season look like they're going to be a good team, this stuff happens. You can see chances like this. Sometimes you can see goals like this. Sometimes you lose games from this. That's why teams don't go the whole season without losing games, even the very best teams. Um, but I don't think these are the types of goals that are going to unwind United's season. Um, or if they are the types of goals that unwind United's season, I think that would be relatively unlucky, to be honest. Um, I don't think this is the type of goal we should be fixating on. I agree. I, I would take it a step further. I think it would be very unlucky if this were the thing that unraveled United's season. Yeah, I think the moment, even the moment Kulisevsky gets the ball, the odds of a, of a Spurs goal are very, very low, given where United's defenders are, where the ball is, and where Tottenham's other players are. Um, I think when Kulisevsky strikes the ball, the odds of goal are even lower, and that's just not how it works out. It happens. Uh, and it turns into a big chance. The reason I'm, I'm talking about this being a low probability outcome from this attack is you look at the XG figures from this match, you see 2.0 United, 1.8 Spurs. It's easy as a, as a numbers guy to talk about, oh, you know, the most likely outcome in this match is probably a draw, but United conceded enough chances that you would expect, uh, you know, a loss is a, is a is a totally reasonable outcome. And of course, this was a very imperfect performance. A loss is a totally reasonable outcome. I'm not saying this is a great travesty. However, variance can work itself out in more than just finishing. You can have, you know, two sides can have even expected goals. And one side can score four goals and the other side can score one. And that's one way that variance can influence gameplay. Another way that variance can influence gameplay is you can hit a cross, and that cross can deflect into the path of a player who is otherwise not available for a pass, and they can get a huge quality chance from it. And that will skew not just the scoreline of the game, it could make it 1-0, for example, but it will also skew the XG of the game. And I think if you go back and watch this match, there's some of that going on. I definitely don't think United deserved to go down 1-0 in this match, I think they were overwhelmingly the better side at an hour. And even after the goal, I still don't think United crumbled, which they did against Wolves. Um, 
well, they didn't concede against Wolves, but they did crumble in the second half against Wolves. This second half was a lot better than the second half against Wolves, in my opinion. Would you agree with that, Aaron? Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. Um, okay, we've talked about that chance. I, I want to add another example to this, by the way. So uh, another thing is, it, it also shows up in things like, you know, when United played Wolves last Monday, um, we argued that Onana made a mistake that should have led to a penalty, um, which would have been point seven six, or I think it's even being adjusted higher than point seven six now um, for a penalty to Wolves. Point eight, I think now, because keepers have to stay on the line. Yep. And then in this match, similarly, I'd argue that Garnacho kicked the ball into Romero's arm blocking a shot, which I don't want to, this is not a podcast where we complain about refereeing decisions, but this is something that would have added 0.76 XG to United's final tally. And so what that means is when you take it, this, this is the essence of why we say when you take a team's XG over 20 games, 30 games, 50 games, it gives you a good idea of how that team has performed over that time period holistically in many cases. However, in a single match, there are so many things that vastly affect these tallies. They're, they're too noisy uh, to evaluate in the simplicity of the numbers um, a- as they are. And there are many things that could mean that the XG ends up being very, very different. I've done this slightly out of order, but let's talk about the chances that are left, and then we'll go backwards. Um, before we talk about Tottenham's second goal, I want to talk about a chance that happened before that where United uh, or Tottenham had the ball on the left side of United's box. United are in settled defense. They have their whole defensive structure back. I think eight players are back and camped in United's box. You have Wan-Bissaka um, off. Uh, you have Wan-Bissaka, Anthony, Casemiro, and I want to say Bruno. Um, and Yves Basuma, Yves Basuma, Backheels the ball through Casemiro's legs, and that is what creates the opportunity for Son to get on the ball, or maybe it's Perisic, and then he passes to Son, and Son winds up between the width of the posts. Shot gets blocked. Um, it looks like a really big defensive breakdown. It is a defensive breakdown. There's no doubt about it. However, when you're marking four players with four players, and one player backheels the ball, it hits one of your players, goes through his legs, and that's how you create the opening for what I think was their third biggest chance in this match, if I'm not mistaken. It's not luck, it's variance. There's variance in that, and that's... If that doesn't happen, this is just a sequence where United's block functions. Um, So again, this is another instance of, I'm not that worried about this chance happening all the time. Moving forward to Tottenham's other really big chance, which is their goal. It's a mistake from Erickson. It's a mistake. It's a mistake from Erickson. Um, it's not a great out-of-possession sequence. This, this is the one, by the way, that comes from Tottenham breaking United's press. However, United's defensive structure resettles. This is not a transition opportunity. Um, and then... Tottenham play the ball into the feet, I want to say, of Richarlison. Varane has to um, come out to follow Richarlison. The ball gets played back to one of Tottenham's midfielders. They spray it out wide to Perisic. Varane can't recover, and Davies makes a run into the vacated space. 
Davies should be marked by Erickson here. Erickson, a very bad out-of-possession midfielder whose legs are gone, does not cover the run. Lissandro gets caught between two players. Um, it looks really awkward. It looks like he should be covering Davies here. Aaron had to talk me out of thinking that. Uh, ultimately, I, I now do not think this goal was Lissandro's fault, but I initially did. Uh, we had a whole debate about this. He's marking two players. It's almost impossible to blame someone when they have to mark two players um, for not being able to prevent a goal. The ball gets into Davies. Uh, he slightly deflects it. Lisandro can't clear it. It turns into an own goal. I think that's an odd marking, in my opinion. But it turns into an own goal. Again, I think there's some bad variants here. Uh, but more than anything, this is just an Ericsson mistake. Um, and I personally, I don't think Erickson should be playing a lot of minutes. I understand that he's not going to never play minutes, so this isn't not a concern. But these are the three big Tottenham chances in this match. They had other openings. Um, but this was not a match where United conceded lots of transitions and Tottenham were driving into space often. That, that was not what happened. Um, and I think that's sort of what I want to emphasize in terms of the second half, because... When you look at the shots totals, half by half, do I have this right, Aaron? Was it 14 to 5 in favor of United in the first half? 14 to 6 in favor of United in the first half. In favor of United in the first half, and then 11 to 8 in favor of Tottenham in the second half. It looks like United capitulated, played significantly worse in the second half. To a certain extent, that's true. Obviously, they conceded twice, conceded most of their expected goals. However, I wouldn't say it was a huge change in their execution of their out-of-possession approach, nor the efficacy of their out-of-possession approach. They still won the ball up the pitch very often. They still didn't concede transition opportunities very often. Um, Most of the issues had to do with player interchanges in the final third, uh, which to me is not something I am deeply concerned about in United's team going forward. Um, does Does that cover that, do you think? I think it does. I'm going to use this to kind of insert one more point that doesn't really fall under any of the categories we had set to, we had set out to talk about today, but I think it's something that should be discussed, which is Mason Mount. Um, a lot of people, I think, seem to have the impression on Twitter that uh, Christian Eriksen came on because Mount uh, has been playing a different role to Eriksen so far this season, um, and Eriksen was coming on to exert positive influence in possession, um, and add a more uh, stable presence being deeper and next to Casemiro than Mount. I think that is categorically false and one of the biggest false assumptions that we've seen so far this season. Mount is playing Ericsson's role. A lot of people are citing things like Mount being higher up between the lines when United have possession with the defenders or with the fullbacks in midfield or with Casemiro. That's something Ericsson did. Many people are citing Mount being high up the pitch in pressing situations. That's something Ericsson did and lost often. United would press man-to-man against double pivot sides, and Ericsson would follow the second double pivot member up the pitch and lose out on duels. Thirdly, Mount is executing this role better than Ericsson in the sample he's played so far. So a lot of people have been talking about how Mount did not get on the ball much in this match. I don't think that's particularly important. I think what's important to notice is that A, when he did get on the ball, his actions in this match were pretty much flawless. B, 
out of possession. I think he made one mistake other than that one that we described in the goal, one minor mistake in the press um, in the entire match that we counted. And he was otherwise not involved at all in mistakes that were made in the press. He otherwise did not make any mistakes out of possession that we spotted. And not only that, he led many successful presses and was actually the member of the press who made the action that either won the ball back or led to winning the ball back. Mason Mount, I would argue, has been United's best outfielder in these two matches. I'm not 100% sure of that. I think there are some other contenders, but... This is not something that I'm worried about at all, and I honestly think the discussion is completely fabricated by social media and, frankly, very annoying. Yeah. The only things I would add to that are, yes, he's executing the press at the highest level of any player in United's team. He, is, he has been United's best player out of possession. He has also been United's most press-resistant midfielder and has had the highest execution level consistently on the ball of United's midfielders. I would argue probably of any of United's players. Um, I say this having watched United's match against Wolves like three and a half times and now having watched um, this Tottenham match. Beyond that, getting more specific, I totally agree it's the exact same role Erickson was playing last season. I would add, not only is he more athletic in the press than Erickson was, he's also covering for Casemiro more than Erickson was last season. There have been multiple passages of play this season where you see Casemiro either gets drawn out incorrectly or drawn out correctly, and Mount is behind him covering. There are also instances where Casemiro is behind Mount in a pressing phase, Casemiro gets beaten in the pressing phase, and Mount recovers like he Mount is further up the field towards Tottenham's goal than Casemiro and then recovers to be closer to United's goal than Casemiro. Um, this is a player who is tactically executing at the highest level of any of United's players, technically executing at the highest level of any of United's players and putting in more effort than any other player on the pitch playing for United. He's, I, I, I'm very comfortable saying he's been United's best player this season. I don't think it's really up for debate. And it's that's where I would Onana. It. It's him or Onana. I agree. I agree. Uh, that's, all I, that's all I have on that issue. I am so, I'm 0% concerned about Mason Mount, the footballer, in a Man United kit. I think he's been very good. Okay. So we have mistakes including, um, or, or sorry, we have defensive breakdowns including ones from Luck. We have United um, making individual defensive mistakes. And then the other thing I wanted to talk about was uh, this idea of rest defense, um, which I kind of touched upon last week with the Wolves game. But essentially the idea is rest defense is also not a problem here. I think the intuition is when you see uh, another team now having a break with many players running at uh, not many defensive players you assume that the problem was rest defense, how many players that your team left back, when the actual problem in most of these cases has been United's players, particularly in this match, I think there was one from Antony, I think there was one from Bruno, and then against Wolves there was there was Garnacho had a few, giving the ball away in situations where they cannot afford to give away the ball, where the top teams do not give away the ball. 
Um, in this match, I'd point you towards, I think there's one where Anthony, um, Wambasaka overlaps him and then Anthony hits the first man with his pass and Spurs are running straight back at United, uh, with, with most of the players ahead of the ball in a situation where it's totally normal for most of your players to be ahead of the ball because even if Anthony doesn't succeed that action, you are relying on him to get it past the first man. Secondly, there was one where Bruno tries to hit this diagonal from the right side in his own half, and he basically passes it straight to Spurs in a break. Um, and Spurs then break. These are not rest defensive issues. These are in-possession execution issues. Um, and those were, I think, the other source of defensive breakdowns in this match. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I think that nicely transitions us to the other major talking point in terms of things that went poorly in this match. Because obviously, United lost this match. They didn't... This was not a perfect performance. There were, in fact, quite a few poor performances. The individuals who I would highlight, who had the the, the greatest influence on this, the outcome of this match being negative, are Anthony and Garnacho. I think this was a bad performance from both of these players with the ball. It's the second consecutive bad performance with the ball from both of these players. Garnacho was a little bit better. Anthony was a little bit better than they were against Wolves, but I think they're really sapping this attack. They are getting into good positions and not executing. Uh, do I think this will last at the at the clip that they're going? No. But I do think it warrants some changes uh, in this week's fixture against Nottingham Forest. What do you think, Aaron? Yeah, you know what? This is a big issue. Um, United's forwards have not executed well in these matches. I think Anthony and Garnacho are the ones who have clearly been poor. Um, Anthony has been good out of possession in both matches. Garnacho was good out of possession in the first match, less so in this match. Um, but yeah, that's a problem. And for the record, I think Bruno was very poor in possession in the first match. He was fine in this Spurs match. And then Rashford has been quite poor in both matches, particularly due to him not being a striker and not being successful in hold up play scenarios. Um, and his movement has been all right, but not particularly dynamic, but Let's focus on Anthony and Garnacho because we're not dropping Bruno and Rashford. Um, I do think you need to play Jaden Sancho. He's now had two cameos where he was the best attacker in the side. And a point you made was considering playing Anthony Martial. Um, I'm also receptive to that idea. I think you might try and replace one of these two. My, my hunch is you replace Garnacho with Sancho. And then if that doesn't work, then you look to bring in Martial. Mostly because I know Anthony's been very frustrating. I know he hasn't been good, but I still think he's tactically very important to how the side plays, both in build-up and in the press. And I'm not sure you get that same output replacing Anthony and Garnacho with Sancho and Martial. That feels like a big trade-off. Um, but yeah, their decision-making was bad. Like, Garnacho gets tunnel vision. He still hasn't figured out how to make good decisions in possession. Um, over-eager to take shots over-eager to dribble at players when he's not well-equipped to based on the situation. I think this is an issue that he will get better at. I think how good he gets at it will probably govern how good he is as a player because I think he can be a productive dribbler, passer, and shooter. But he needs to learn how to read the opposition defense and make appropriate decisions. Um, as for Anthony, the decision-making was somewhat bad, but I think most of Anthony's issues were execution problems. Um, he's failing simple passes. Um, he's losing the ball in possession sequences. There are times when I think he doesn't do anything wrong, but better players would just pull off the actions that he's attempting because 
they're faster in the dribble or um, they, you know, I don't think it's as big an issue, but use their right foot or um, just things like that that we yeah. know about Anthony's game already. Yeah, I, I, I think a few things. I think I'm not that worried about his weight of pass and things like that. I think he is perfectly good enough in, in that. I am worried about his, his ceiling in terms of his ability to impact matches. I think he's very limiting to this team. I, I think he needs to be replaced. Uh, not this season. I don't think it's a priority. I think United will be perfectly good enough. He will play major minutes, and I don't think it will... Over the course of the 50 matches plus United will play this season, I don't think it will be truly limiting. Uh, but I, do, I, I don't think United can win a title with Anthony consistently starting matches. I think that's where I'm at with just how low the lows can be uh, are, are unacceptable. Uh, but he's going to score some goals this season. Um, he, he'll have better matches than, than these by a long shot. Uh, but I, I definitely, if you're going to be fed up with anyone, I can understand being fed up with Anthony. Uh, because someone like Garnacho, you see the path to higher level impact. With Anthony, I think it, there's much less of a path. Yeah, I think this is one of two things where I would say Ten Hag is definitely the uh, is definitely the one who made the mistake in this match. I think after you saw what you saw against Wolves, you do not roll out the same lineup. Yeah. And I think the same applies to Aaron Wambasaka. Yeah. That's and the other big thing. There have been a about. lot of arguments about Aaron Wambasaka. And so what we did was we studied every buildup United tried in this match and how Spurs were pressing United. And what we found was that case, I'll let you get into this one because I took the pressing one, but essentially it seemed like Spurs were funneling the ball into Wambasaka and build-up. Yeah, so the way Spurs were pressing United from goal kicks was United take their goal kicks from Lisandro Martinez back to Andre Onana. Richarlison would curve his pressing run to prevent the return ball to Lisandro Martinez. And uh, Rafael Varane overwhelmingly would sort of drop into a central space where he wasn't an available passer. And Tottenham would deliberately leave Aaron Wambasaka unmarked and force the ball to him, and then force him to make a play with the ball. And he consistently failed to do so. Beyond the fact that his execution levels were poor, I want to emphasize the fact that this was very clearly a deliberate tactical decision by Tottenham to force Wambasaka to beat them with the ball. Uh, this is not the first time we've seen a team do this. Uh, Unai this Emery's, goes back to Solskjaer's days. Yep, Villarreal uh, in the Europa League final did this uh, in, a, in another phase of the match. They basically dared Wambasaka to beat them in the final third. But it's the same principle. You cannot keep on... Pl- Last week, I, I think I said to you, Aaron, that I didn't think that was a match you could blame on Aaron Wambasaka. This was a match where you can very clearly say Wambasaka was very, very, very poor. Um, I would say there, at, at a minimum, there were half a dozen instances where he was d- directly responsible for giving up the ball in deep buildup, and a better player could have made a better play with the ball. Um, United, in the few instances where they forced the ball to the left side, were able to build up better. There was one instance where Lisandro Martinez made... A, a pretty serious gaffe that Mason Mount had to sort of cover up for. Uh, but other than that, building down the left was 
far more successful and it was directly as a result of having better players than Wambasaka uh, playing out. And as soon as Dallow came into the match, which I, I really do think Dallow's substitution, like you said this while we were watching, Aaron, was a direct tactical response to what was happening with Wambasaka. As soon as Dallow came on, this was no longer an issue. Um, you, could, you can say, well, Tottenham were up, so their pressing may have changed slightly. I think there's some truth in that. But I also think Dallow, when put in positions to make plays in these situations, did. I think it's a huge strength of his, whereas it's a huge weakness of Wambasaka. And you got to be able to play out of the back. This is gonna, this, if you want to be a good transitional team, you have to be able to create tr- transitions from your own half. And Wambasaka is... This, this was, a, in the scheme of Wambasaka matches, this was a very bad one, specifically because he was getting targeted tactically by an opposition manager. Yep. I mean, I'll I'll do the same thing I did with the goals and breaking down the magnitude of the mistakes he was making. I think Wambasaka made, I would say, a double-digit amount of errors in possession in this match. Yeah. Um, there were at least seven or eight in the first half. Some of the issues he was having. Uh, number one, probably the least concerning, the throw-ins. I think he lost, he, he had multiple bad throw-ins that were leading to either... They did a one-two from the throw, and then he couldn't execute the pass after the ball was returned to him, or he threw the ball badly and made a bad decision, which led to uh, the ball being lost. Um, that that that's something that I guess you could you could ideally coach, but I mean I don't think that's a core technical issue in his skill set, but I it was definitely a problem. The second thing was, so I want you to picture Onana playing a sideways pass from roughly inside his six-yard box to Wambasaka just by his own corner flag. And Wambasaka is going to try and play a ball into Antony's feet, and Antony's going to be holding off the man behind him under pressure. And this is something that I would say, despite Antony's faults, which we already discussed, he's probably United's best forward at doing this, because he's actually pretty good at turning these into fouls, or actually getting to turn and playing sideways passes that get United out of these situations. However, the ball was not being played precisely enough into Antony's feet for him to actually be able to do that. So there were many situations where Antony was getting toppled over um, because the ball was too light and he had to run to get it, or the ball being fired into him too hard, and then he couldn't take it under control well enough uh, to be able to turn and play it. So that's one of those things where it's like, even if you simplify the instructions so that Wambasaka's role is simple enough, he's still going to end up in situations where the fact that he's not as technically strong as a player like Dalo in build-up means United can't execute these plays. There are other situations where this also applies. There are times when he just lumps the ball away because he cannot see a passing option that is easy enough for him to complete, so he'll hit the ball at an attacking midfielder or a forward and hope they can make it stick. And it looks good when they do, and it looks awful when they don't. Um, he can't switch the ball out of pressure, which is something that is one of the main aspects of Dalo's skill set and gets United out of buildup really often when he plays. Finally, I'll say this. There are things that Wambasaka did do well in this match. There were sequences that he played well. There are always times when he has a couple of eye-catching actions, carries out of pressure, but he's not doing it with the consistency required. He's also making defensive mistakes. There were chances that Spurs had in this match from Wambasaka failing to track a runner properly. Um, and 
even if you look at him as a, as a talent product, he's not allowing you to play the way you want to play, and he's giving the opposition a way to play you the way they want to play you. And so therefore, it makes more sense to play Dalo. and if you don't want to play Dalo, go buy another right back, go find someone else in the squad you're going to play at right back, because it literally feels like you fix the De Gea problem with Andre Onana, and teams are starting to just push the issue up a line into United's right back. Um, and, and this will be a problem all season as a result if you keep playing Wambasaka, regardless of what you think his strengths are. Yeah. Yeah, I think the only thing... Yeah, to, just to, to boil down your point, even if you think Diogo Dallo is not a very good player, Wambasaka is cripple, cripplingly poor in a key area that United have to improve in and visibly suffer in it's that simple um so i don't really see it as a viable option to continue playing him you can either play dallow which i think is okay i don't think it's amazing i don't think he's a perfect player but the other option is to buy a new right back it's not to play wambasaka you're right he was good in pressing sequences in this match he's had some good box threat in moments uh, he assisted our only goal this season but this is a player who, when compared with the rest of the squad, is dragging the team down. And he's not alone in that, but I would say in this match he probably was the third worst player on the pitch for United and in terms of executing his role, the worst. Alright, I think we should wrap up this match. Let's try and give a quick summary here. Pressing. There were individual errors in the press. There were a few tactical breakdowns in the press with the fullbacks in particular. But for the most part, we don't really think pressing was a problem in this match. And in particular, United won the ball back or contained the opposition most times they attempted a pressing action. Um, We talked about uh, Casemiro and Mount and their dynamic. The dynamic has not changed from last season. Casemiro and Eriksen did make a lot of defensive errors in this match. And I think that is something we are relatively worried about as long as they're playing minutes and playing minutes at this level. Um, In particular, I think we've seen Casemiro obviously have a very, very good defensive career. So maybe there's hope that he's going to improve again, but it's something to watch out for. We talked about attacking execution. Um, Garnacho and Antony in particular not being able to or making bad decisions in attacking areas, and that leading to United not turning uh, pressing regains into good shots not turning good shots into goals. Rashford and Bruno also had their fair set of issues in the attack. Uh, Bruno more so against Wolves. I think Rashford needs to move back to his actual position, which is left wing. And lastly, we talked about build-up, how Spurs were using their press to funnel the ball into Wan-Bissaka and rely on the fact that he wouldn't be able to consistently break their press. And that is something that worked. And that leads to United being able to actually get into the final third less, which also leads to less chances created. However, ultimately, United, I think, were the better team in this match. They didn't blow Spurs out of the water, but they were the better team in this match. They outshot Spurs. They out-XG'd Spurs. They arguably could have had a penalty. I don't think this is a match you need to be extremely concerned about. I think if you play this match again, there are a lot of outcomes where you draw. I think if you play this match again, there are a lot of outcomes where United win. 
Things happen. United will lose games, and we're only two games deep into the season. There are clearly some teething issues with the team. There are going to be teething issues with the team. The tactical approach is evolving and changing. And not only that, I think the tactical approach is very clear. And where United are going wrong isn't entirely non-tactical and isn't entirely not down to Ten Hag. But there are many, many explainable factors in the players' performances that are leading to this. As far as Case and I have seen in our watchings of these games. Um, and I watched the Wolves game once and this Spurs game twice. Case watched the Wolves game like three, four times and watched the Spurs game with me the second time. With us going through each phase of play, pausing, thinking about what's happening in this match, reevaluating, and discussing what went wrong and what went right, not just like watching the match through 1-90. to We paid a lot of attention to this and maybe we'll still end up being wrong, but ultimately... I still don't think these performances are symptomatic of a greater breakdown for United. I think we need more evidence to suggest that United are going to fall apart this season. And until we get that, honestly, I think they're going to be okay. Yeah, I think this is what it comes down to. Were these performances good enough when you consider everything that that did happen? No. If United execute tactically at the level that they have in these first two matches... And the players that they are fielding play at their general, typical level. Will that be good enough? I think yes. And so, with that in mind, I am not worried. I think this team will be perfectly fine. In fact, I think, based on what I've seen, this team will be better than it was last season. Alright, let's wrap it up with the no details. This is the segment where we allow you to ask anything you would like, but with one caveat. The questions cannot be about football. And we have a couple of good submissions today, so Case, I'm going to get you to go through them here. If you, if you want a giveaway to an all-expenses-paid trip to a non-European, non-English-speaking country, which would you choose and why? Oh my goodness. Wow. You know, I'm going to choose Kenya. Um, so for those who don't know, my parents actually grew up in Kenya. Um, and immigrated to Canada in the 90s. And I've never gotten to go back, and I they haven't gone back since they immigrated to Canada, actually. But they always tell me stories of, A, where they grow up, a place I'd love to see. They say it's unrecognizable now to what it was then, and I believe them. Um, but B, they describe the safaris, in particular Masai Mara. And that's a place that, based on their descriptions, I've always grown up wanting to see and uh, and experience it's i think something completely different to anything i've seen in my life uh, and so if i had the choice uh, given no european countries no english-speaking countries i think that's what i'd choose okay i have a couple of answers to this question first of all I don't, <laughs> if the qual if there wasn't even the qualifier european i think my answers would would not be european um However, I have an answer that is just where I would like to go, and I have another answer that is me gaming this. So I'll, I'll give the, the gaming answer first. I'll, I'll preface this with, this is a privileged answer because I have the benefit of, of, of a very strong currency uh, in that when I travel places, I get to spend with you know the euro or the dollar, and, and, and that's I, I'm lucky in that way. But given that... If somebody else is paying for me, I'll probably go to Japan 
because I've always wanted to go to Japan, and Japan oh, is expensive. Oh, that would be amazing. Yeah. That would be amazing. Yeah. Japan would be amazing. I'd love to go to Japan, and Japan is expensive for anyone, no matter what currency you're spending in. So Yeah, if someone else is spending, I'm going on a full wine and dine every single day in Japan. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to eat so much expensive food. Um, but... No, I was going to say, I think Tokyo is number one in the world for Michelin star restaurants. It is. It's them or Paris. Yep, it's it's Tokyo, and then I think Paris is like a distant second, and then London, maybe, I think. Interesting. Um, speaking of food places, I have always wanted to go to Mexico City. Mexico City is, Mexico in general is just like a place I would love to visit. So I was actually thinking of Mexico City as well. Yeah, uh, I think Mexico City is probably top of my list other ones that i would love to go to off the top of my head morocco turkey um indonesia uh argentina chile i could keep i'm just i'm just naming countries at this point but those are places i would love to visit uh, and if i had the resources and the time i certainly certainly would if someone else was paying for it yeah, these are these are all great picks. I mean, I'd also throw in India. Uh, I know you went recently, so that's probably why it's not on your list. But I last went when I was four years old. So again, for more family history, before my family was in Kenya, they were in uh, in Goa. Um, and so I'd love to go back to Goa at some point and also go explore other parts of India, which I mean, some of the things to see cities in the world and one of my favorite food cuisines as well. I mean, I've grown up with it, so. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, you're right. The reason I didn't say India is because I was in, in India earlier this, year, earlier this year. However, the thing about India is you can go to India a million times and still not really know the place or have tried all of the food. or Yeah. Like, it's not, it's not yeah. one culture. It's not one food culture. It's, there's so much to, to see and do. It's and like its own continent. <laughs> it literally is its own continent. Um, yeah. So I would love to go back to India. There's still so many places I haven't seen. Um Beyond that, now now I just want to keep on naming, but Tanzania, I'd love to see. Kenya, I'd love to see. Nigeria, I have a very close friend from Nigeria. Senegal. Um, yeah, <laughs> I can keep on going. Dude, there's so many places I would love to see. Um, yeah, travel is high, high up my list once I finish university. Uh, my university program is ongoing for five years nonstop. So I have not had the chance to travel overseas in a very long time. Uh, but... All of these places that you've listed, plus a bunch of places in Europe, are all high on the list once I get out of having to be here. Okay, we'll move on to one more no-details question, and this is from our friend James Rolanti. Oh, by the way, our, first, our original question that I asked is from JM. Uh, That's a nice question. Yeah, I like so that thanks, question JM. a lot. Thanks, JM. Uh, this is from James Rolanti. What other sports do you guys like other than football? I know you'll probably go for baseball. This question was directed at me specifically. I am a very big baseball fan. Uh, I know you'll probably go for baseball, but I'm also interested in what Aaron would say. Yeah, Case is definitely the sports guy is what I'll say. Um, I actually really only am invested in, in football. Uh, but, I mean, I guess I'll, I'll throw in some Canadian culture here in that I played competitive curling when I was in high school for four years. <laughs> it's it's a every no details that comes up we get like something i can make fun like i knew this actually before but something (laughs) i can make fun of you for listen curling is a ton of fun um it takes like a year to get passively good at it for it to be fun and so the first year was not that fun 
but I'm glad I stuck with it because it ended up being one of my favorite parts of actually being in high school. Um, and now I haven't played in many, many years and I really miss it. Um, another thing is, I mean, I'm not as into it anymore, but growing up, I did used to watch a fair bit of tennis. Um, I guess I just don't have as much time anymore, but yeah, I've always, I've always really liked tennis. And I think if I went back into trying to watch another sport, it would either be tennis or NHL. NHL mostly because of its A, relevance in Canada, and B, I just think the speed and the coordination with which professional hockey teams play is staggering. Like the, if you've never tried skating, actually just skating is hard enough to be a professional sport and is an Olympic sport. Um, and to add the playing hockey and the tactical elements of hockey, which a lot of which mimic what we see in football, as well as the increased speed and coordination with which those tactical elements have to exist. Like I think in football, there's still an element of teams can exist without strong, heavy coaching in every single phase. In hockey, I'd imagine that has to be near impossible because teams have to execute things like offside lines and icing traps um, and face-offs with a level of execution that if you're not good at them, you can't win at hockey. You can't even attack at NHL level. Yeah. So yeah, that's the sport I think I'd choose, um, if not tennis or going back to playing curling like I did in high school insanely Canadian answers. Like, you could not have you could not have given more Canadian answers if you had tried. Um, incredible content. Uh, I'll give a short answer. Every no details, you sound like the most, like, cultured, like, world-exploring person. And I just sound like a... Um, uh, my, my quick answer on that one is, yeah, I'm a huge baseball fan. Um... I'm a huge basketball fan also. Actually, some of the first sports analytics writing I did was on basketball. What else? I watch some F1. I watch uh, some tennis. Um, I'm probably forgetting something. There was a time when I watched American football as well, though really not anymore. Um, I guess I guess that covers it in terms of the sports. And then we had one more that I really liked. And we're going to do that very quickly because Aaron has to edit this. I want him to be able to go to bed. Um, <laughs> For context, it is 10.40 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And this episode should drop at 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, Tuesday morning. So Aaron has a long night ahead of him. Rip. We're praying for you, Aaron. <laughs> um, <laughs> the 10th long night in the last nine days. <laughs> Okay, last question. This is a longer form question, but I don't think either of us are big video game guys, so I'm going to cut it down to a shorter one. We were asked top five video games. I'm going to ask you for your favorite video game instead. Okay, yeah, I played a fair bit of like Mario games as a kid, um, but I, I wouldn't really call myself a gamer, so my, my answer is going to be Mario Kart Wii. Um, I love Mario Kart Wii. It's probably the game I've logged the most hours on in my life. Um, I played through Mario Kart DS. I don't know. These are just childhood memories. Like, I love the different tracks. I love the characters and, and all the different, like, carts. And it's also a great party game, but I feel like you can also play it on your own and have a ton of fun. The age of my childhood where I was old enough to 
play video games, but young enough uh, to have a lot of time to play video games. Yeah, I mean, recently I mostly play FIFA, if I ever touch an Xbox, which I haven't since, I think, the start of July. Um, I've I've been trying to get back into it because a lot of my friends game a ton. Gaming culture is huge in Waterloo. For those who don't know, I'm sure anyone who's heard of Waterloo knows that gaming culture is huge in Waterloo. But, yeah, I just haven't been able to get back into it given my schedule. So, I'll go with Mario Kart Wii, my favorite childhood game. I like that answer. Okay, if I'm going to go all-time favorite game with the caveat being FIFA is definitely the game I've spent the most hours of my life playing. Uh, My college roommates and I played it obsessively uh more as like a a rivalry thing amongst us than actually it being about the game uh but that that was those were memories i cherish in terms of games i played on my own assassin's creed brotherhood when i was uh, a young yeah see that's like a legit game (laughs) a young bright-eyed boy um i loved that game i I love that game. I think I completed 100% of that game, which is pretty rare for me. Um, and I, I continued to just wander around in the world after I was completely done with it for a very long time. Uh, and sometimes I boot up my old Xbox 360 just to roam around in my old save. Uh, I haven't done it in a while, but there was a time when I did it. <laughs> uh, so that's my answer. My my favorite Assassin's Creed story is uh, my cousin Conrad, who might actually be listening to this. He's a big United fan. Um, he loves Assassin's Creed. And years ago, we were traveling in Italy together. And I don't know which version of Assassin's Creed it is, which takes place in, like, the Italy of hundreds and hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. There are two of them. But he brought... Yeah, so he, he brought one of the maps from the Assassin's Creed, like, handbook... Uh, that you get on the inside of the cover of the disc. And he pulled out the map. And we were like walking around Rome and the Vatican. And he was like, oh, see, you can see this road from <laughs> Assassin's Creed 500 years ago. And he's like trying to navigate us through the streets of Rome and the Vatican using Assassin's Creed. Which, I mean, I, I feel like that's a testament to how well the games are made, honestly. The early games were definitely incredible. The The original Assassin's Creed in Istanbul is also fantastic. Um, but yeah, those used to be really good games. I haven't kept up with the franchise, uh, but when I, at the end, when I was playing, I didn't love them as much, but maybe that was just an age thing. Um, all right. That's an extensive no details, uh, section. Last week, I think I left you off with saying, don't worry, everything's going to be fine. And then we obviously lost, but I'm not going to lie. I'm, I'm even more convicted in that belief than I was last week. Uh, I think everything. This was will a better be performance than that game. I agree. I think everything will be fine, um, and hopefully the vibes will improve. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think given the social media reaction this week, this episode was a little bit of angry rant, Case and Aaron, um, which is also partially why we threw in three no details questions because we didn't want it to be a completely miserable like we think you're all wrong kind of thing and. You know, we might end up being wrong too, of course, but ultimately, yeah, I think even if this is a sign of for a future catastrophe, I think I'm going to need to see a lot more signs uh, before I conclude that this is a real problem. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I would add, honestly, it was 
we were way overdue for this to happen, and we were warning all of last season that this was eventually going to happen in some form, that there was going to be a moment when Aaron and I felt that the performances were okay, but it was not in line with the public perception, and we were going to have to say it. And honestly, I'm surprised it took this long. And you know what? We could be very wrong, uh, but I don't think we are. And... Uh, we'll see. Maybe this will be Devils in the Details Heritage. Maybe we'll, we'll have an egg on our face, and, and that'll be Devils <laughs> in the Details Heritage too. But Well, we don't enjoy recording after results like this, so hopefully next week we don't have to. And I think we also really don't enjoy being wrong. So now we've got two things betting on United, turning this around and, and producing a good season for us. So stay tuned. Hope this kind of brings some level-headedness and context to the crazy reaction to the crazy results this week for a crazy football club with crazy ongoings. Um, but otherwise, hopefully you enjoy your week and stay tuned for next time. Thanks, everyone. Hope you enjoyed this week's Devils in the Details. You can follow us at Devil's ITD Pod on Twitter or on a variety of streaming platforms. Our awesome theme music was made by Jacob Connor. You can find at Jacob J. Connor on Twitter. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.